Section 6 of Great Ghost Stories by Joseph Lewis French. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 6 The Open Door by Mrs. Margaret Oliphant. Part 1. I took the house of Brentwood on my return from India in 18 blank for the temporary accommodation of my family until I could find a permanent home for them. It had many advantages which made it peculiarly appropriate. It was within reach of Edinburgh, and my boy Roland, whose education had been considerably neglected, could ride in and out to school, which was thought to be better for him than either leaving him home altogether or staying there always with a tutor. The lad was doubly precious to us, being the only one left to us of many, and he was fragile in body, we believed, and deeply sensitive in mind. The two girls also found at Brentwood everything they wanted. They were near enough to Edinburgh to have masters and lessons as many as they required for completing that never-ending education which the young people seem to require nowadays. Brentwood stands on that fine and wealthy slope of country, one of the richest in Scotland, which lies between the Pentland Hills and the Firth. In clear weather you could see the blue gleam of the great estuary on one side of you, and on the other the blue heights. Edinburgh, with its two lesser heights, the castle and Calton Hill, its spires and towers piercing through the smoke, and Arthur's seat lying crouched behind, like a guardian no longer very needful, taking his repose beside the well-beloved charge, which is now, so to speak, able to care of itself without him, lay at our right hand. The village of Brentwood, with its prosaic houses, lay in a hollow almost under our house. Village architecture does not flourish in Scotland. Still, a cluster of houses on different elevations, with scraps of garden coming in between, a hedgerow with clothes laid out to dry, the opening of a street with its rural sociability, the woman at their doors, the slow wagon lumbering along gives a center to the landscape. In the park which surrounded the house were the ruins of the former mansion of Brentwood, a much smaller and less important house than the solid Georgian edifice which we inhabited. The ruins were picturesque, however, and gave importance to the place. Even we, who were but temporary tenants, felt a vague pride in them, as if they somehow reflected a certain consequence upon ourselves. The old building had the remains of a tower, an indistinguishable mass of mason work overgrown with ivy, and the shells of the walls attached to this were half filled up with soil. At a little distance were some very commonplace and disjointed fragments of buildings, 
one of them suggesting a certain pathos by its very commonness and the complete wreck which it showed. This was the end of a low gable, a bit of gray wall, all encrusted with lichens, in which was a common doorway. Probably it had been a servant's entrance, a back door or opening into what are called the offices in Scotland. No offices remained to be entered. Pantry and kitchen had all been swept out of being. But there stood the doorway, open and vacant, free to all the winds, to the rabbits, and every wild creature. It struck my eye the first time I went to Brentwood, like a melancholy comment upon a life that was over. A door that led to nothing, closed once perhaps with anxious care, bolted and guarded, now void of any meaning. It impressed me, I remember, from the first. So perhaps it may be said that my mind was prepared to attach to it an importance which nothing justified. The summer was a very happy period of repose for us all, and it was when the family had settled down for the winter, when the days were short and dark, and the rigorous rain of frost upon us, that the incidents occurred which alone could justify me in intruding upon the world my private affairs. I was absent in London when these events began. In London, an old Indian plunges back into the interests with which all his previous life has been associated, and meets old friends at every step. I had been circulating among some half-dozen of these, and had missed some of my home letters. It is never safe to miss one's letters. In this transitory life, as the prayer book says, how can one ever be certain what is going to happen? All was well at home. I knew exactly, I thought, what they would have to say to me. The weather has been so fine that Roland has not once gone by train, and he enjoys the ride beyond anything. Dear Papa, be sure that you don't forget anything, but bring us so-and-so and so-and-so, a list as long as my arm. Dear girls and dearer mother, I would not for the world have forgotten their commissions or lost their little letters. When I got back to my club, however, three or four letters were lying for me, upon some of which I noticed the immediate, urgent, which old-fashioned people and anxious people still believe will influence the post office and quicken the speed of the mails. I was about to open one of these when the club porter brought me two telegrams one of which, he said, had arrived the night before. I opened, as was to be expected, the last first, and this is what I read. Why don't you come or answer? For God's sake, come, he is much worse. This was a thunderbolt to fall upon a man's head, who had only one son, and he the light of his eyes. The other telegram, 
which I opened with hands trembling so much that I lost time by my haste, was to much the same purpose. No better. Doctor, afraid of brain fever, calls for you day and night. Let nothing detain you. The first thing I did was to look up the timetables to see if there was any way of getting off sooner than by the night train, though I knew well enough there was not. And then I read the letters which furnished, alas, too clearly all the details. They told me that the boy had been pale for some time, with a scared look. His mother had noticed it before I left home but would not say anything to alarm me. This look had increased day by day, and soon it was observed that Roland came home at a wild gallop through the park, his pony panting and in foam, himself as white as a sheet, but with the perspiration streaming from his forehead. For a long time he had resisted all questioning, but at length had developed such strange changes of mood, showing a reluctance to go to school, a desire to be fetched in the carriage at night, which was a ridiculous piece of luxury, an unwillingness to go out into the grounds, a nervous start at every sound that his mother had insisted upon an explanation. When the boy... Our boy Roland, who had never known what fear was, began to talk to her of voices he had heard in the park and shadows that had appeared to him among the ruins. My wife promptly put him to bed and sent for Dr. Simpson, which, of course, was the only thing to do. I hurried off that evening, as may be supposed, with an anxious heart. How I got through the hours before the starting of the train, I cannot tell. We must all be thankful for the quickness of the railway when in anxiety. But to have thrown myself into a post-chase as soon as horses could be put to would have been a relief. I got to Edinburgh very early in the blackness of winter morning and scarcely dared look the man in the face, at whom I gasped, What news? My wife had sent the brougham for me, which I concluded, before the man spoke, was a bad sign. His answer was that stereotyped answer, which leaves the imagination so wildly free. Just the same. Just the same. What might that mean? The horses seemed to me to creep along the long, dark country road. As we dashed through the park, I thought I heard someone moaning among the trees, and clenched my fist at him, whoever he might be, with fury. Why had the fool of a woman at the gate allowed anyone to come in to disturb the quiet of the place? If I had not been in such hot haste to get home— I think I should have stopped the carriage and got out to see what tramp it was that had made an entrance and chosen my grounds of all places in the world when my boy was ill, to grumble and groan in. But I had no reason to complain of our slow pace here. 
the horses flew like lightning along the intervening path and drew up at the door all panting as if they had run a race. My wife stood waiting to receive me with a pale face and a candle in her hand, which made her look paler still as the wind blew the flame about. He is sleeping, she said in a whisper, as if her voice might wake him. And I replied when I could find my voice, also in a whisper, as though the jingling of the horse's furniture and the sound of their hoofs must not have been more dangerous. I stood on the steps with her a moment, almost afraid to go in, now that I was here, and it seemed to me that I saw without observing, if I may so say, that the horses were unwilling to turn round, though their stables lay that way, or that the men were unwilling. These things occurred to me afterwards, though at the moment I was not capable of anything but to ask questions and to hear of the condition of the boy. I looked at him from the door of his room, for we were afraid to go near, lest we should disturb that blessed sleep. It looked like actual sleep, not the lethargy into which my wife told me he would sometimes fall. She told me everything in the next room, which communicated with his, rising now and then, and going to the door of the communication. And in this there was much that was very startling and confusing to my mind. It appeared that ever since the winter began, since it was early dark and night had fallen before his return from school, he had been hearing voices among the ruins. At first, only a groaning, he said, at which his pony was as much alarmed as he was, but by degrees a voice. The tears ran down my wife's cheeks as she described to me how he would start up in the night and cry out, Oh, mother, let me in! Oh, mother, let me in! with a pathos which rent her heart. And she, sitting there all the time, only longing to do everything his heart could desire. But though she would try to soothe him, crying, You are at home, my darling. I am here. Don't you know me? Your mother is here. He would only stare at her, and after a while spring up again with the same cry. At other times he would be quite reasonable, she said, asking eagerly when I was coming, but declaring that he must go with me as soon as I did so to let them in. The doctor thinks his nervous system must have received a shock, my wife said. Oh, Henry, can it be that we have pushed him on too much with his work? A delicate boy like Roland. And what is his work in comparison with his health? Even you would think little of honors or prizes if it hurt the boy's health. Even I, as if I were an inhuman father sacrificing my child to my ambition. But I would not increase her trouble by taking any notice. 
There was just daylight enough to see his face when I went to him, and what a change in a fortnight. He was paler and more worn, I thought, than even in those dreadful days in the plains before we left India. His hair seemed to me to have grown long and lank. His eyes were like blazing lights projecting out of his white face. He got hold of my hand in a cold and tremulous clutch and waved to everybody to go away. Go away, even mother, he said. Go away. This went to her heart, for she did not like that even I should have more of the boy's confidence than herself. But my wife has never been a woman to think of herself, and she left us alone. Are they all gone? he said eagerly. They would not let me speak. The doctor treated me as if I were a fool. You know I'm not a fool, Papa. Yes, yes, my boy, I know. But you are ill, and quiet is so necessary. You are not only not a fool, Roland, but you are reasonable and understand. When you are ill, you must deny yourself. You must not do everything that you might do being well. He waved his thin hand with a sort of indignation. Then, father, I am not ill, he cried. Oh, I thought when you came you would not stop me. You would see the sense of it. What do you think is the matter with me, all of you? Simpson is well enough, but he's only a doctor. What do you think is the matter with me? I am no more ill than you are. A doctor, of course, he thinks you are ill the moment he looks at you. That's what he's there for, and claps you into bed. Which is the best place for you at present, my dear boy. I made up my mind, cried the little fellow, that I would stand it till you came home. I said to myself, I won't frighten mother and the girls. But now, father, he cried, half jumping out of bed, it's not illness. It's a secret. His eyes shone so wildly, his face was so swept with strong feeling that my heart sank within me. It could be nothing but fever that did it, and fever had been so fatal. I got him into my arms to put him back into bed. Roland, I said, humoring the poor child, which I knew was the only way. If you are going to tell me this secret to do any good, you know you must be quite quiet and not excite yourself. If you excite yourself, I must not let you speak. Yes, father, said the boy. He was quiet directly, like a man, as if he quite understood. When I had laid him back on his pillow, he looked up at me with that grateful, sweet look with which children, when they are ill, break one's heart, the water coming into his eyes in his weakness. I was sure as soon as you were here you would know what to do, he said. To be sure, my boy, now keep quiet 
and tell it all out like a man. To think I was telling lies to my own child, for I did it only to humor him, thinking, poor little fellow, his brain was wrong. Yes, father, father, there is someone in the park, someone that has been badly used. Hush, my dear, you remember there is to be no excitement. Well, who is this somebody, and who has been ill-using him? We will soon put a stop to that. Ah, cried Roland, but it is not so easy as you think. I don't know who it is. It is just a cry. Oh, if you could hear it. It gets into my head in my sleep. I hear it as clear as clear. And they think that I am dreaming or raving, perhaps, the boy said with a sort of disdainful smile. This look of his perplexed me. It was less like fever than I thought. Are you quite sure you have not dreamed it, Roland? I said. Dreamed? That? He was springing up again when he suddenly bethought himself and lay down flat with the same sort of smile on his face. The pony heard it too, he said. She jumped as if she had been shot. If I had not grasped at the reins, for I was frightened, father. No shame to you, my boy, said I, though I scarcely knew why. If I hadn't held to her like a leech, she'd have pitched me over her head and never drew breath till we were at the door. Did the pony dream it? He said with a soft disdain, yet indulgence for my foolishness. Then he added slowly, It was only a cry the first time, and all the time before you went away. I wouldn't tell you, for it was so wretched to be frightened. I thought it might be a hare or a rabbit snared. And I went in the morning and looked, but there was nothing. It was after you went I heard it really first, and this is what he says. He raised himself on his elbow, close to me, and looked me in the face. Oh, mother, let me in. Oh, mother, let me in. As he said the words, a mist came over his face. The mouth quivered, the soft features all melted and changed and when he had ended these pitiful words, dissolved in a shower of heavy tears. Was it a hallucination? Was it the fever of the brain? Was it the disordered fancy caused by great bodily weakness? How could I tell? I thought it wisest to accept it as if it were all true. This is very touching, Roland, I said. Oh, if you had just heard it, father, I said to myself, if father heard it, he would do something. But mamma, you know she's given over to Simpson, and that fellow's a doctor and never thinks of anything but clapping you into bed. We must not blame Simpson for being a doctor, Roland. No, no, 
said my boy with delightful toleration and indulgence. Oh, no, that's the good of him. That's what he's for, I know that. But you, you are different. You are just father, and you'll do something. Directly, Papa, directly, this very night. Surely, I said. No doubt it is some little lost child. He gave me a sudden swift look, investigating my face as though to see whether, after all, this was everything my eminence as father came to. No more than that. Then he got hold of my shoulder, clutching it with his thin hand. Look here, he said with a quiver in his voice. Suppose it wasn't living at all. My dear boy, how then could you have heard it, I said. He turned away from me with a pettish exclamation. As if you didn't know better than that. Do you want to tell me it is a ghost, I said. Roland withdrew his hand. His countenance assumed an aspect of great dignity and gravity. A slight quiver remained about his lips. Whatever it was, you always said we were not to call names. It was something in trouble. Oh, father, in terrible trouble. But, my boy, I said, I was at my wit's end. If it was a child that was lost, or any poor human creature, but Roland, what do you want me to do? I should know if I was you, said the child eagerly. That is what I always said to myself. Father will know. Oh, Papa, Papa, to have to face it night after night in such terrible terrible trouble, and never to be able to do it any good. I don't want to cry. It's like a baby, I know, but what can I do else? Out there, all by itself in the ruin, and nobody to help it. I can't bear it, cried my generous boy. And in his weakness he burst out, after many attempts to restrain it, into a great childish fit of sobbing and tears. I do not know that I was ever in a greater perplexity in my life, and afterwards, when I thought of it, there was something comic in it too. It is bad enough to find your child's mind possessed with a conviction that he had seen or heard a ghost but that he should require you to go instantly and help that ghost was the most bewildering experience that had ever come my way. I did my best to console my boy without giving any promise of this astonishing kind. But he was too sharp for me. He would have none of my caresses. With sobs breaking in at intervals upon his voice, and the raindrops hanging on his eyelids, he yet returned to the charge. It, it will be there now. It will be there all the night. Oh, think, Papa, think if it was me. I can't rest for thinking of it. Don't, he cried. 
putting away my hand. Don't. You go and help it, and mother can take care of me. But Roland, what can I do? My boy opened his eyes, which were large with weakness and fever, and gave me a smile such, I think, as sick children only know the secret of. I was sure you would know as soon as you came. I always said, Father will know. And mother, he cried, with a softening of repose upon his face, his limbs relaxing, his form sinking with a luxurious ease in his bed. Mother can come and take care of me. End of Section 6 The Open Door, Part 1